Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 22. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 22. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord and sh with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. King David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Anchor Bay. Merry Christmas. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Well, I know, you know, the start of the Christmas season, we have lots of things on our minds. Some of us are coming back from traveling last, the last week or two. And, and so I want to just give us a moment, like we do every Sunday, to just breathe, be quiet before the Lord, invite God to speak to us, not just this morning, but this entire Advent season in a, new, in a unique way. And I will open us with a word of prayer after a moment. So let's just be quiet before the Spirit and invite God to speak to us today.
God, with us, you have invited us into your presence. And we are grateful for all of the ways that you meet us where we are. And we pray that this season you would open us up to a fresh word about who you are, why you came, what we're invited into through Christ. We pray this morning that you would help us to to hear past the the clutter and the to-do lists and the obligations that we often associate with this season and experience you in a joyful and fresh and playful way that we can learn to play before you as children do and as David did and to find new delight in that and in who you are. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we did it. We made it to the Christmas season. This is the most wonderful time of the year. Every day this month is joyful and jolly. This is the month of snow angels and hot cocoa and Christmas movies where kids get to teach grown-ups about what really matters in life. There are endless Christmas parties. There's extra time with family. Your house is magically transformed into a winter wonderland, presumably from all the boxes that just magically appeared upstairs. Your your stomach is a bottomless pit for, for gingerbread and candy canes and cookies, and you don't need to worry about weight gain because the only clothing that anyone expects you to wear this month are your adorable Christmas jammies. Plus, who can forget the best part? The presents. You spent all year being so good, so you know you're going to get exactly what you want, and you cannot wait to tear into the gifts under the tree this year. And then bonus, you have no responsibilities for two whole weeks, so you can just play with your new stuff. No wonder we all love Christmas. It's the happiest time of the year. Except when you're an adult. (laughs) That's not quite how it always goes, right? Lots of us remember Christmas that way. And we're told that Christmas should be that way. But at some point, as adults, all that whimsy and sugar and wonder and gifts get under the tree get wrapped up with to-do lists and cleaning supplies and lots of expectations. Some of us spend months or, or weeks saving for gifts and, and trying to be thoughtful. And what we get in return is this. Or this. We spent weeks, maybe we spent months planning for the perfect Christmas wonderland for our homes, and it starts off like this, and it it ends up like this in like two hours. We are the ones lugging the decorations out from the basement or down from the attic, and if we get the blessing of a white Christmas, we are the ones digging us out. We have to navigate extra childcare, extra cleaning, extra financial strain, extra trips to the gym. Who are we kidding? The gym is January use problem. But the Christmas season, it isn't just full of extra things to do or schedules to juggle or parties to attend. For lots of us, the Christmas season can bring about harder memories, too, like Adele shared with us. As we get older, this time of year reminds us of loved ones that we can't be with or who are no longer with us at all. Some of us feel lonely or lost as we wrap up another year and enter a new one. And for lots of us, seasonal depression is starting to kick in. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent, whether you're a professional or in between jobs, whether you're a student or a a professor or a pastor, this time of year for adults can bring all kinds of mixed emotions for us. And the very real joy and and hope and wonder of the season can get all tied up with, with very real grief and loneliness and overwhelm 
or nostalgia for the way things used to be when we were kids. Christmas as adults can look very different from Christmas when you're a kid, which is why we are spending this month, like Pastor Ethan shared, during the month of Advent, we are in an Advent, or during the month of December, we're in an Advent sermon series, which we are calling The Gift of Wonder, childlike practices that connect us with Christ. Every Sunday for the next four weeks, we'll be taking a look at one characteristic or practice that we typically associate with children, but that God intends for everyone, for grown-ups too. Even as adults, we can practice childlike wonder at who God is and who God invites us to be. Because in that wonder, through those practices, God can reframe us and recenter us on the things that matter. And this morning's childlike practice as we start the Christmas season is play. Play. And just as a side note, uh, I love what Adele shared about coloring. We actually, our arts team set up a creation station in the back of the sanctuary so that if you're an adult, you want to you color during the sermon or if you want to kind of create something, we'd love for you to, to run back there at some point during the sermon and be able to, to think creatively or think outside the box during our sermons this season. Play. So what is play? Well, a few years ago, uh, New York Times Magazine did a study on play. They, entitled their, they dedicated their entire issue to it. And if you look at the cover, one thing is missing. Anyone? Adults. There's no adults in this picture. I mean, think about it. As kids, we go to our, our friends' houses last minute. We knock on the door. We don't have any agenda. There, were no, there are no scheduling requests, no Calendly links, no, like, I'll get back to you with some dates that work. It's just... Can Bryn come out and play? And then we'd go outside for hours, we'd play make-believe, we'd climb trees, we'd ride bikes, just for the fun of it. But as adults, we don't really do that anymore, do we? Like, like when was the last time you heard an adult say to their friend, let's go out and play? For some reason, play seems to be something that we expect to eventually grow out of. But it wasn't always this way. Let's look at this painting from 15th century uh, Europe by Peter Bruegel. So in this painting, there are 124 different types of play. There's people who are playing with other people. There's people who are playing solo, alone. And the interesting thing about it, if you look up close, is that all ages are represented in this painting. It seems that back then, play was just considered to be a part of life from the cradle to the grave. So what even is play? Is it something that's just reserved for children or something that we left behind in the olden days? What does it mean to play? Well, there's a, a play researcher, I love that there's a play researcher, named Dr. Stuart Brown. He's written some, some great books and articles on play, and he defines play as engaging in an activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. Engaging in an activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. According to Dr. Brown, there are seven principles that describe play, or properties that describe play. It has no purpose. It's voluntary. There's an inherent attraction to it. We want to do it. There's a feeling of being free from time. It makes us less self-conscious. We stop thinking so much about ourselves when we're at play. It allows us to improvise. And it makes us want to keep doing it. We want to do it more. Play is something, basically something that we just enjoy doing just for the fun of it. But here's the thing, and here's another reason why this is hard for us. If play isn't something that we typically associate with adults, it's also not something that we typically associate with Christians either. 
there's a sardonic uh, social critic named H.L. Mencken, and he, he gave devout Christians the name Puritans, and as he's talking about Christians, he just calls us Puritans, and he says, Puritans are a people who have a deep foreboding fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. <laughs> French poet Charles Baudelaire describes Christians as ultra-reasonable and anti-poetic people, some of whom refuse to allow their children to play with toys. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote that if he were to believe in God, he would only believe in a God who dances. But given the lives of the Christians that he knew, he said such a God must not exist. Ouch. These comments, they seem to, to suggest that in perception or in practice or both, play has little or no place in the Christian life. Saints are to be serious, straight-laced, the frozen chosen. And these, these perceptions, they aren't totally unfounded with the way that we typically talk in the church. Traditionally, Christians like things with practical use. As people, we Christians are deeply utilitarian. We're purpose-driven. So everything we do is generally justified on the grounds of its general usefulness. And we really feel that, especially here in New England, the home of the Protestant or the, the Puritan and Protestant work ethic. And all of that, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but it does mean that we can tend to develop an idea that play is generally a waste of time. Play lacks no obvious purpose. So we keep plugging away at the to-do lists and the, the errands and the timers and the cleaning and the shopping and the preparing. We're supposed to be productive, useful, purposeful, which is good to an extent. But I wonder if scripture is inviting us into something more. So I'd invite you, if you brought your Bibles, to open up with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. We've been in the New Testament all fall, so we're going to spend a little time this morning in the Old Testament. And we're going to read the passage, or take a look at the passage that Esme read for us a few minutes ago. So that's 2 Samuel, chapter 6, starting at verse 12. So when we look at this story, everything at first starts to center around the ark of God. The Ark of God. What was the Ark of God? Well, physically, it was, it was just a little thing. It wasn't even quite four feet long. It was just over two feet wide. And inside the Ark were three important items. There was the, the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and Aaron's rod. So these things weren't anything magical, despite what Indiana Jones taught us. But the Ark was... <laughs> Ethan gave me that joke, and he's just cracking up over there. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Yeah, I have joke writers, guys. Um, so the ark, it wasn't holy in and of itself. It wasn't anything super special in and of itself, but it was a reminder of a holy God. And the ancient Israelites took it seriously, kind of like you might take your wedding ring seriously. It was a symbol. It was a reminder of a covenant. And it pointed the Israelites toward the living God in their midst. God with us. God with us. And the main character in our story this morning, Jesus' ancestor, Jesus' relative, King David, he decides to bring the ark to his new kingly capital in Jerusalem. And he wants to put God's power on display, and he wants to tie his rule to the worship of his God and be associated with the God that he loves. And so he plans this big celebration. He pulls out all the stops. He brings harps and, and, and lyres and tambourines and uh, castanets and cymbals, and, and he organizes this huge party to celebrate God in the city. And everyone's singing, and they're dancing, and they're shouting with joy. And so the story goes, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Everyone is full of joy at this party. Everyone 
except for one person, David's wife, Michael. She looks down from her window at all the festivities, and she sees her husband dancing and leaping and making a fool of himself. And in the story, we read a line that in pastoral ministry, we say is a surefire death sentence for any marriage. She was full of contempt for him. She was full of contempt for him. Why? Well, it could be her head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that her shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that her heart was two sizes too small. She looks at David dancing, singing and and laughing and celebrating before God, and I imagine that she's embarrassed by his playfulness. And she tells him so just as soon as he gets home. If you can imagine it, King David is is skipping into the courtyard and he's smiling and he's laughing and his skin is suntanned from being in the sun and his muscles are aching from having danced all day. And he goes into his wife's chamber and he invites her to twirl around with him and he's hoping that she'll join in the fun. and, And then he looks at her and he notices the look on her face and his gaze drops and his smile fades. And I have to imagine he knows this look well by now. What is it now, Michael? And she glares back. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would, she snarls with a sneer. Tisk, tisk, David. Grow up, David. You have people to impress and a kingdom to rule, David, and a reputation to uphold. When will you start adulting? And I imagine David getting really somber, and looking her square in the eye and harnessing all the seriousness that he's avoided all day. And he says this, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. God chose David to rule, and David is thankful. And then he draws a hard line with Michael. He's, and, and when we look at this next part, it says most of our English, or when we look at the next part in our English translations, most of our English translations describe this part kind of like this. I will celebrate before the Lord, or I will dance before the Lord, or I will laugh before the Lord. But the word that the Hebrew writer just uses to describe what David said is a little bit more fundamental. The word that David uses here is sachach, which means that David looked at Michael and he said, I will play before the Lord. The Lord is good. The Lord chose me, therefore I will play before the Lord. David did what is so hard for so many of us. He throws caution to the wind, his reputation to the wind. He became undignified. I will play before the Lord. Play was hard for Michael. It's hard for so many of us, and sometimes it's hard for me. One night recently, I was sitting quietly. I was reading a very important article about playing in preparation for the sermon. And my husband, my husband came home, and he, he put on his headphones, and he started listening to a comedian while he was making dinner. And he started giggling. And then he started laughing out loud. And it was constant. He was having so much fun listening to this comedian. And to be honest, it distracted me. And it annoyed me. I was learning about play, and I needed to focus. (laughs) And so I asked him to be quiet multiple times. I'm trying to read. I'm adulting here. I was apparently channeling my inner Michael instead of my inner David. My, my, look at how my husband is distinguishing himself today. My, you're having fun while I'm trying to do something big and important like planning a sermon. And Aaron looked at me, 
And he said something that stopped me in my tracks. He said, I would think that you would like that something is making me happy. Whoops. <laughs> and as a side note, I love how much my husband laughs. He fills our home with laughter constantly, and he gets me laughing. Fun fact about Aaron, he even laughs in his sleep. Like, he will be... <laughs> He will be completely dead asleep, and I will wake up, and he's just like cracking up about something that's happening in his dreams. It's awesome. My husband loves to laugh and to play, and I need his example because so much of the time I get so stuck in my head or so stuck on my deadlines or my to-do lists, and I forget to rest and laugh and play. Why is this so hard? Why is it so hard for so many of us? Well, I think there are a few reasons. Some of us, we feel like we have just too much to do. And to be fair, there are seasons in life for some of us when we truly do need to focus on caring for someone else. Maybe it's an elderly parent, a newborn baby, a spouse with cancer. There, they, there actually may not be an, a lot of extra time in seasons like that for play. We all go through seasons like that, and that's okay to go through seasons like that and be honest that that's just not where you are. But sometimes, even when we're not in a season like that, we can let a lot of life center around the things that our kids or our families or our friends want or want from us. And that's not a bad thing until it comes at a cost to the things that we value or the things that we enjoy. Until we say yes to everyone else's agenda, and as a result, have to say no to our own agenda or the things that really matter and bring us life. And that can be especially true. We feel that especially this time of year. We can work so hard at making sure that everyone else is having a good time that we stop having a good time. And what's worse is that sometimes in our culture, we're taught, or we tell ourselves, that our own joy or rest or play isn't as important as making sure that everyone else has their needs and wants and priorities for us met. We can't rest because we have too much to do to keep up with the expectations that others have placed on us. That's why play is hard for some of us. Others of us have a hard time playing because we don't want to seem out of control. We're taught to rein it in, be professional, be appropriate, Laughing hysterically can make us feel out of control. Singing out loud can make some of us feel self-conscious. Dancing makes us feel vulnerable, and we don't want to be perceived as, as goofy or awkward. Or maybe others of us, maybe we, we look around at the world, the world as it is right now, and we don't feel like we deserve to play. It feels frivolous when there's so much going on and there's so much suffering everywhere. When countries are at war, people are being oppressed, and those are real feelings, too, and those things matter. Some of us feel weighed down by our to-do lists. Some of us don't want to feel out of control. Some of us are, just feel like we shouldn't play when there's so much need around us. But for most of us, for most of us, there's a simpler reason why we don't play before the Lord as David did. We just don't remember how to. Some of us have neglected play for so long that we have lost all the instinct and reflex and capacity for it that we were born with, and we've lost the language of play that we once had. The average child laughs 300 times a day. Isn't that beautiful? But the average adult, we only laugh 20 times a day. And what happens over time is that our, our work suffers, our relationships suffer, our health suffers. So given all of this, there are any number of reasons that we could cite of why we should play. 
why we should prioritize it. I could cite all the medical studies of why we should play. There's been a lot of research done on play in the recent decades. Play shapes our brains, not just when we're children, but our entire lives. Play helps us develop empathy. It's at the core of innovation and creativity. I could cite all the social reasons for why we should play. Play helps us navigate social groups. It gives our relationships elasticity and, and flexibility. It helps us get through tragedies. I could cite all the professional reasons for why we should play. As counterintuitive as it can seem, it can make us more productive and more creative when we get back to work. It can renew excitement and newness about our jobs or our studies. It can help us through difficulties. It can promote mastery of whatever it is that we do in our professional lives. It can help with our creative process. Like, how many of you can think of a time when you hit a wall or writer's block or just didn't want to keep working on a project at work, and then you, you went out for a walk or you had coffee with a friend or you, you initiated a dance party with your kids, and then you came back to the task with a new perspective and inspiration? At the very least, for our brains, our work, our relationships, there are lots of reasons why we should play. But I don't think any of those reasons are the reasons that inspired David's playfulness before the Lord. David didn't play because it made him more productive or more relational, although it might have. He didn't play because it, it increased his survival instincts or lowered his cortisol levels, although it might have. He didn't play because it made him a more creative psalmist or harpist, although it might have. No, David played before God because God is good. That's it. That's it. He played because in God, he could experience a life that was beyond his own capacity to control or measure. He played because he was open to God dancing in and around him. In this moment in our story, it seems that David has come to the realization that God chose him. That David's own life and gifts and leadership, not to mention the, the gift of the whole creative world, had a personal giver. A God whom he could know. So it's no surprise that David finds himself bursting in joyful laughter and song and dance and wonder. For David, everything in life is a gift to marvel and wonder at. And that, I think, is at the heart of the invitation in the scripture to play. We are promised nothing in this life, and yet we are offered everything. We are offered Christ himself. He is a gift that we have done nothing to earn, He's a gift we are not owed. He is a gift we are given just because a good God decided to give him to us. We don't have to work for this gift. We don't have to prove anything to get it. We don't have to have a clean, beautifully decorated home or perfect family photos or any of the other things that keep us working this time of year. All we have to do is receive the gift of Jesus, a gift that is given to us by grace. That's it. I like how writer uh, Shauna Nequist wrote. She said, I want a life that sizzles and pops and makes me laugh out loud. And I don't want to get to the end or to tomorrow even and realize that my life is a collection of meetings and pop cans and errands and receipts and dirty dishes. I want to eat cold tangerines and sing out loud in the car with the windows open and wear pink shoes and stay up all night laughing and paint my walls the exact color of the sky right now. I want to sleep hard on clean white sheets and throw parties and eat ripe tomatoes and read books so good they make me jump up and down. And I want my every day to make God belly laugh, glad that God gave life to someone who loves the gift. Those who play before the Lord know that everything in life is a gift, and so we might as well enjoy it. 
play reminds us through goofiness and silliness and belly laughter that we are no, not owed anything, and yet we have everything in Christ. So we can stop being so dignified and proper and serious and purpose-driven all the time. We can just be ourselves and play before God. Now, of course, there are moments in life to be serious. Our world's issues should be taken seriously. We need to focus on them, get angry about them. We, we need to move ourselves according to God's purposes. We shouldn't gloss over our own or other people's struggles. There are times and seasons for us to mourn and cry and grieve and fight. There are times when playfulness might not be appropriate, certainly. And on the cross, we learn that Jesus takes you and I and our world seriously enough to die for. But what we learn through Jesus on the cross is that sh sin and shame and death don't get to have the last word. In light of the resurrection, we also get to play before the Lord because we get to join into eternity starting now. No matter what we face in this life, we also get to leap and dance and sing, if for no other reason than that God is good, and that's reason enough. And this, friends, is also at the heart of why we celebrate and observe Advent. In the church, Advent is traditionally a season of waiting, a season of longing in the midst of a weary world. And yet in the midst of a weary world, we also get to rejoice. We rejoice because Emmanuel, God, has come. Play anchors us in the reality that even though we wait, even though we long for the world to be different from the way it is right now, God has promised us infinite, eternal joy in Christ, joy that we get to experience right now, even in the midst, in the middle of the darkest season of the year. All throughout the Bible, God invites the people to play. We see it in the command to rest, to take Sabbath, to hold festivals and dance. We see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus was always going to celebrations and dinner parties. His first miracle was at a wedding reception. And it gets lost in translation, but Jesus was always making puns and jokes. Apparently, he was a pretty fun guy to be around. And Jesus loved hanging out with kids. He welcomed kids. He laughed with kids. He said to enter the kingdom of God, we must become like kids. And even though we don't have a lot written down about Jesus' own childhood, I think it's telling that Jesus didn't enter the world as a big political figure or a super spiritual religious leader or as an established adult with a mortgage and a grocery list. The first time Jesus introduces himself to us, he came as a baby. He came as a child. And he invites us to become childlike, to connect with God too. Because we worship a playful God. Our God made mountains and hills to sing and trees of the field to clap their hands. Our God delights over us with, with joyful songs. We grown-up Christians, we might have a, a deep foreboding fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. We might be ultra-reasonable and anti-poetic, but when we look at Scripture, that posture doesn't wholly represent the God that we worship. We have a God who dances. Why, why are we invited to play? We're invited to play because it turns out God does. And if even God plays in the middle of everything else that's going on in the world, then maybe we can too. So what about you? Do you play enough? Do you do some things for no other reason than just God is good and that you can? When did you last take a day out to just play? Or even an hour or half an hour? 
For some of us, the only way that we will be able to say yes to God's invitation to play in this season is first by saying no. Jesus said no to good things, even sometimes to ministry opportunities, so that he could say yes to resting, to playing, to building relationships, to spending time with his father. So if even Jesus says no, then maybe it's okay that we do sometimes too. Now, of course, there are moments when it's important to sacrifice for for the good of others or for the good of the community as a whole, but that doesn't mean that your Christmas needs to be wholly dictated by others' wants for you. You do not have to do every Christmas tradition, pull out every decoration, go to every party, and I'm saying the next thing as a pastor, you don't even have to attend every church event. I'm not even going to attend every church event. You don't have to buy everyone that you know a gift spend money that you don't have, volunteer at every soup kitchen, or donate to every gift drive. Some of those things are wonderful to do, but it's important to spend some time evaluating what is yours to do in this season and what you're piling on is going to take away from your ability to rest and to play. It's important to name what your priorities are and what other people's priorities are for you. It's important to name what would bring you joy and acknowledge that your joy and you having the margin to connect with God in this season, and you being able to delight in the gift of wonder is important too. Other people may not like it when you say no, but that's theirs to work out with God. So what do you need to say no to so that you have the margin to say yes to playing before the Lord this Advent and Christmas season? What do you need to say no to so that you have the energy and margin to experience joy and wonder this Christmas? So for some of us, play starts with saying no. For others of us, we need to be reminded how to play because we might have forgotten what that even looks like for us. And this is something that you can do even if you're in the middle of a season of grief or depression or another hard time. Play can actually be an important part of your healing and processing those things. So maybe it's time to, to find a child or an adult who, that you know that plays really well. Sometimes the easiest way to build play into your lifestyle is by surrounding ourselves with people who love to laugh and dance and sing and play before the Lord, and maybe their joy will start to be contagious for us. Maybe it means thinking back and remembering when you were a kid. What did you love doing? What did you have fun doing that you just don't make time for anymore? Explore backwards as far as you can. Try and remember the most clear, joyful, playful memory that you have of play, whether that's with a toy, a birthday, a vacation, a relationship. What could it look like to build that into your life now? What Christmas memory brought you delight as a kid but that you don't make time for or that needs updating maybe for you as an adult? Maybe you loved making gifts for people when you were a kid, but but even though you probably wouldn't give away the same kinds of things now, maybe you could consider giving a gift away this Christmas that you've made. Or, Or maybe you could give the gift of your time to your friends and family. Invite them to do something fun with you in the new year. Think outside the box. Maybe you loved family Christmas movie nights when you were a kid, but watching Prancer doesn't bring you as much joy anymore. So pull out the parts of the tradition that you loved and leave behind the rest. Go sledding, read a children's Christmas book, have a dance party, build a blanket fort, make peppermint cocoa. Married couples, kiss under the mistletoe. For 15 seconds, just make out. It's okay. Do something fun, if for no other reason than that God is good and that you can. And however you play, however you find ways to delight in life this Christmas season, do it like David did. Do it with all your might. Play before the Lord, and over time, your life will become a response to H.L. Mencken's Puritan, who worries about people having fun, and will show the Nietzsche's of the world that there is and that you know a God who dances. Let's pray.
God, we delight in your playfulness, and we know that you delight in ours. And we pray this Christmas season that we would hear your invitation to delight in you with our time, with our energy, with our relationships. We ask for wisdom on what to say no to so that we can say yes to that wonder and delight. We ask for the ability to set boundaries, to lower our expectations of ourselves and others so that we can truly enjoy you and celebrate the gift that you came into this world to know us and be with us and save us and offer us an eternal party that we get to join into now. So we love you. We thank you for the ability to worship and to play before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.